The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Morning, church. Luke 13 um, is where we're going to be. I, I wondered as I was uh, prepping this if we've allowed, just thinking about where we've been over these past few weeks, but if we've allowed the casualness of our culture uh, to affect our faith. We are uh, certainly, I think you would agree, uh, more casual in the way that we conduct ourselves in our culture these days, the way we dress, uh, the language that we use, the way we greet one another. Uh, the way children talk to adults um, are all indications of the casualness of our culture. And I, I don't want to um, I don't want to actually address any of that today. That's not this message. That's not my point at all. I'm I'm not assessing it. I'm just using it as an example to to really launch us into this question: Have we become too casual in our faith? And from the last few messages, I know we have a number of guests here this, this morning, but from our last series of messages, say the last three weeks, uh, we, which have all themed in the same direction, we've got the very real sense that Jesus isn't messing around. It's been a, a very sobering few weeks in God's word, in fact. He's been teaching us about his imminent return and the impending judgment that's in front of every one of us, and I might rightly ask if you and I are taking all of this seriously enough. And the idea of that actually was prompted in my mind by my son Luke. Um, our, Cheryl and I, our third born, is a Bible college student, second year. He's studying this semester in Israel. Here's a picture of him by the Mediterranean Sea this week. And uh, this morning, he texted me another picture. Uh, they're staying by the Sea of Galilee, and he's actually, as we worship here today, he's on a boat on the Sea of Galilee, which is awesome. And uh, this week in one of his classes, uh, one of his profs said this, and Luke posted it online, did Jesus die a casual death for us? Why then do we live a casual life for him? Now, now could, we, could we agree that we must not be casual or flippant about the death of Christ? Could we agree that we must not be casual or flippant about the return of Christ? And each time over these past three weeks, Jesus has strongly made his point. And I asked the question, why does he keep going over it and over it and over it and say it again and again and again in almost the exact same way? I mean, I came to my prep this week and looked at the passage again and said, I've already preached this message, not last year, last week and the week before. Why is God putting it in front of us again, except that maybe some of us are too casual about it, and maybe some of us have just kind of, oh yeah, that again. And that we're not taking it seriously enough. Again, 
Uh, today then, in today's passage, Luke 13, 1 to 9, we're going to find some realities that must be embraced in light of his imminent return. Let me read these nine verses, and then we'll start uh, working through the passage. Luke 13, 1 to 9. There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he, that's Jesus, answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Well, this is what's in front of us uh, today. In light of Jesus' imminent return, here are some things that we uh, should all embrace. Uh, the first is the universality of death. I, I get that no one wants to talk about death. I, I get that. I get that in the midst of February, it's almost unfair <laughs> that, that, I, that we should have this topic. Why couldn't we have a, a sunnier topic, a more encouraging thing uh, to talk about? And I also get that we all know that we're going to die, so the point is a bit moot in that sense. Uh, but we sure don't act like it. It's like we've cognitively accepted the fact that we're going to die, but then we don't want to think about it ever again. And in fact, as proof of that, I would tell you that this very interesting stat that I looked at this week, that somewhere between 56 and 62% of Canadians do not have a will. Another 12% of Canadians have a will that is now out of date. If you take the top number, 62, and add the 12, like three quarters, 74% of Canadians are, are not ready to die from, from the perspective of having a last will and testament, that they've actually thought it through, and this is what needs to happen. And I think there's a number of reasons why that might be so. One lawyer suggested that it's because people don't like lawyers, <laughs> and I think that's legit. But let's be honest, I don't think that's the real reason. Maybe it's just that people procrastinate, and, and that might be part of it, but I don't think that's the real reason. I, it's, we're in denial. We, we think it's not coming for us. We, we don't want to think about it at all. And, and so we don't. And so these people come to Jesus, uh, verse 1, there were some present listening to Jesus, taking in his teaching at that very time, who told him about these Galileans who died. Now, they didn't just die, in fact. It said that a Pilate, who was the Roman governor, had mixed their blood with the sacrifices. In other words, what was going on here is they were evidently in the temple, and they had brought sacrifices, and they were in the midst of making their sacrifices. In some way, they had um, gotten on the wrong side of Pilate, 
and he had them executed right there in the temple so that their blood was mixed with the blood of the sacrifice. For a Jew, this is an abomination. This is, this is beyond the scope of what they could take in. And so this isn't just a death. This isn't just a tragedy. It's, it's an atrocity. It's, it's, it's incomprehensible to them, disturbing in every way. And so these people who are with Jesus, they're raising the issue and we're not really given the motive why they raised this particular story. There's all kinds of possibilities. We're not told here in the text. Luke doesn't clue us in. Jesus doesn't really address the question in the way I think they want him to. And so Jesus kind of doesn't really address it so much. Not in the way they want he adds another story on top of theirs down in verse four where he talks about these 18, some kind of construction incident. 18 are killed when the Tower of Siloam falls on them. And what Jesus is really wanting them to hear, whatever their motive is for bracing it, Jesus wants them to hear something that's kind of matter of fact something they really need to come to grips with, and it's simply this. Tragedy happens, and people die. That's it. Tragedy happens, and people die. He makes no attempt to explain the tragic deaths in any other way. It's no more complicated than that. Whoever dies... Whenever they die, however they might die, they die, we all die. Let's embrace the simplicity of that. That's the common denominator. We're all going to die. That's not fatalistic. It's just fact. Now at this point, sometimes I would just get you to turn to your neighbor and, and repeat it so we got the principle and I could get you to turn to someone right now and say, you're going to die, but I just thought that would be awkward. <laughs> and a little uncomfortable. And so with that being said, if we could accept the universality of death and really lock it in there and say, this is something important that I need to think about, but then the result of that is what? Why bring us to this point? And it's simply this, to ask the question, which is really the most important question you'll ever be asked and ever need to answer. What must I do? What must I decide before that happens to me? What must be decided, what must be done before death comes for me? Do you think there's a more important question than that? Could there be a more important question than that one? That's what Jesus is trying to get us to. Because while you do not have a choice about physical death, you don't have a choice about that. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for man once to die and after this the judgment. It's appointed for us. You don't have a choice. But you do have a choice and you can opt out of spiritual death or what is called second death. You can opt out of that. The book of Revelation talks about second death. Do you want to die twice? 
eternal separation from God? Do you have a choice about that? And I want you to hang on to that thought for now. We're going to get to there because in, in that, there's that little bit of hope. But for now, it's just about embracing the universality of death. And then also this, ready for the second one? You say, well, if it's as encouraging as the first one, yes, for sure. Lay number two on me. I love this church. It's so encouraging here. More of this. We also need to embrace the culpability of humanity. Um, We're guilty. We're guilty. We're sinners. So Jesus answered them back in verse 2. Jesus answers them this question about these Galileans. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners? He has no trouble calling them sinners. They are sinners, like everyone's a sinner. Worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And Jesus is challenging a very common idea in Jewish thinking, and I'm afraid, common thinking for some of us as well, that people who suffer must have done something to merit that suffering. My life is so hard because, their life is so challenging because. Now this is a question that he addressed, I think, super clearly in John chapter 9. You'll recall this, a blind man is brought to him. And the question is raised before Jesus, this man was born blind, and the question is raised, who sinned, this man? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Do you remember Jesus' answer? He said, neither, neither sinned. He said, but this man was born blind so that the works of God might be seen, so that God might be glorified in this. The the, the blindness wasn't the result of, of any sin in his life. And then I I think of an Old Testament example, of course, and the classic is Job, who was a righteous man in every single way. In fact, so righteous, it caught the attention of Satan, who wanted to see if he could trip him up. So he went to God, and he just said, well, of course, you've blessed Job so much, God. Of course, he's going to serve you. But let me afflict him. Let me make his life exceedingly difficult. Let me bring tragedy after tragedy into his life, and then we'll see if he doesn't curse you. And of course that happens, and uh, tragedies uh, are so awful, we can hardly imagine them. And the end of chapter one says this, in all of this, Job did not sin or accuse God of any wrong. And yet he's the poster child for tragedy and, and hardship. And so we're dispensing with the notion That people who suffer must have done something to merit that suffering. The sin in their lives did not result in their tragic deaths. And Jesus adds his own example again, the tower in Siloam. Do you think that these people who died in this tragedy were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? The answer, of course, is no. The tragedy affected sinners, but not because they had sinned. Just because tragedy and death come to all of us. Now, in some respects, what Jesus is trying to do here is get us to stop ranking ourselves against anyone else. This is, this is a plague. This is a plague. 
that we afflict upon ourselves, the comparison of our lives, the, the good things we do and how, how good are they compared to the good things other people do and the bad things that people do versus the bad things that we do and comparing ourselves and ranking ourselves constantly. And we need to stop the weighing and measuring of sins to see if we're good with God and good in the eyes of other people. To stop saying, you know, before the Lord, to stop saying, at least I'm not as bad as this person. And I wonder how many of us have done that comparison in the past week. See, it doesn't matter in a sense because humanity, and by that I mean humanity is culpable, by that I mean that every human being is culpable. Could you point right now to the human being who's of greatest concern to you right now? Just point to that human being. Just said, We're talking about me. Don't get lost in the, in the generalism of it, in the broad strokes. This is, this is the human being who I must be concerned about. This is the human being who's culpable. I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. And I need to, I need to recognize that. And yes, some people do more heinous things. And some people, like many of you, probably most of you, you're just run-of-the-mill, nice people sinners. <laughs> but does that, does that really matter once you get to the judgment? I mean, either Jesus covers your sin however much of it you have or don't have, either he covers your sin or he doesn't. The amount of sin is actually pretty irrelevant. Here, here's the math. Here's the math. One sin, one sin is enough to sever your relationship with God. Back to the book of Genesis. What happened? Adam and Eve in the garden. Perfect, perfect. No sin in the world. Which sin was it that, sever, that severed their relationship with God? The first one. Now for sure, you just, you see right after, sin upon sin starts to get, they just follow. It's like an avalanche of sin follows after. But the first one was enough to sever the relationship. What Jesus is doing here is he's establishing the baseline for belief. What does it really take to be a true follower of Jesus Christ and therefore be ready for his imminent return? What does that take? The first step, of course, is confessing that you need him to forgive you, to save you, to forgive you of your sins because you are a sinner. Acknowledging that your sin is your responsibility. So you're not blaming anyone else. You're not blaming your mom and dad. You're not blaming some family history. You're not blaming your physiology or your environment. You're not, you're not blaming any set of tragedies that befell you and therefore this is how you are. No more blame shifting. I am responsible for my own sin despite any circumstances in my life. Take responsibility for it. And it is that you also believe that the only solution to that is that Jesus Christ is God, that he took on human flesh, 
that he gave his life as a sacrificial offering for you. What's called the atonement, substituting his life for yours. The payment you should have had to make, he made. And in so doing, he covered your sin with his own blood. That alone is what makes it possible for you to be saved. The only solution. His being raised from the dead on the third day brought the resurrection power to your life, defeating sin, defeating the consequence of sin we just talked about, which is death. And therefore, he can do for you what you need him to do for you. Cleanse you of your sins and save you from spiritual death, second death. So do you see it? The universality of death, the culpability of humanity, all necessary because of this. Ready for the third one? The inevitability of judgment. So Jesus, as he's done before, follows up this conversation with a story or a parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it. He found none and he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. I cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Now, now when we listen to this parable, I, I need you to understand there's two messages being communicated here to two very different audiences. Uh, the first audience is of greatest concern to Jesus in the moment. It's the Jews who are in front of him. This, of course, is happening before he gives his life on the cross, uh, before the resurrection, and so he's still in the mood of, the, the mode of, of uh, proclaiming the kingdom of God to the Jewish people to try and gather them in to believe in him, the one who is their Messiah. He's talking to them. But he knows in this moment that they are in peril of rejecting their very own Messiah, the promised one that they've been waiting for for centuries and centuries, the one who all the prophets spoke of. They're in danger of missing him entirely. So he speaks of this fig tree, and throughout the Bible, the fig tree is a symbol of the nation of Israel. God had established his covenant with Israel, with, with Abraham, with Moses, with David. And with Israel's ultimate rejection here of her Messiah, God passed the covenant on from Israel post-resurrection to the new covenant or New Testament believers, whether they be Jew or Gentile. The nation of Israel as God's instrument of blessing to the world would be in very short order set aside. And in historical terms, the, des the destruction of the temple in AD 70, several decades after the resurrection, would have been the kind of final blow when God set aside his covenant people and the church now fulfilling the terms of the covenants with God. That's the fig tree being cut down. Israel set aside by God. But the, the good news is, if we could just dive into this for just a few moments, the good news is that it's not forever. It's not forever. 
Uh, those who have been around a while will know that I did a series on this several years ago called The People of God. It deals with Romans 9, 10, and 11, which go into this in great depth. We've uh, found that series. We've posted it on the website, harvestberry.ca slash people of God. It's only an audio. It's four messages. So if you want to go into this more deeply, you can about the fig tree, about Israel, about the people of God and how that all fits together. You can dive into that more deeply. But in summary, we could just say here, there will yet be a regathering of Israel. Jot down this reference, Luke 21 uh, 29 to 33 speaks of a fig tree again coming back into leaf. Luke 21, 29 to 33. And therefore we can know that the kingdom of God is near. It's a prophetic sign. One that we're probably seeing in these days. Romans 11, uh, 19 through 24 says that the branches were broken off. That's what happens shortly after Jesus is speaking here. But that God has the power to graft them back in again. Something will happen to bring Israel back in. He speaks of a partial hard, hardening of Israel's heart, but not a full hardening. It's only temporary until there's a fulfillment of several prophecies related to the Gentiles. All of that in Romans 11. God says of the Jews right near the end of chapter 11 in Romans that they are his beloved. But for now, cut down. So that's the first message here in this parable. The first audience that he's speaking to. But the second message, the second audience are Luke's readers, you and I, and all of those who have read Luke's gospel over the centuries. And, and we need to be most concerned about what this parable is saying to us, because we too should see ourselves in the fig tree and asking ourselves the question, when God comes and looks at the tree that is my life, is he seeing fruit on this tree or not? Am I producing something that's giving evidence that I truly am a follower of Jesus Christ, that I'm being transformed by him? Because the tree without fruit is a symbol of a professing believer who shows no actual evidence of being saved, no life change, no transformation happening, no sense really that the Holy Spirit is really resident in the person's life, no fruit. And this actually goes on in a person's life for some time. God's grace and God's mercy means he's just holding back on the judgment for now. Even though he sees no fruit. And you, and you see this again in the text as the parable continues. In fact, this is a picture of a fig tree and um, some figs there. I, I tried to bring in some real ones. They're not in season. Can't find them right now. But the picture of the tree is this. The, the owner of the vineyard comes and he says, I've been coming for three years. And you might think, well, the tree, it just sounds like this tree might be too young to have this kind of judgment brought upon. But you have to understand that once a fig tree is planted, they don't even look for fruit on it for three years. When the owner of the vineyard says, I've been coming for three years, what he's really saying is, I didn't look for the first three years. I've been coming now years four, five, and six. I'm still not seeing any fruit. It's been six years and nothing's happening. So when the vine dresser says, 
Let, give me one more year. Let me, let me till the soil around the tree. Let me fertilize around the tree. Let me see if, if, if in one more year, that seventh year, that fullness of time, let's see if this tree can really produce some fruitfulness. He's, he's pleading for patience. And isn't it true that God is I like the word long-suffering. Isn't it true that God is so long-suffering with us? So uh, patient toward us in light of our sin and our rebellions against him? You see, he's, he's giving us time to repent But that time's not indefinite. It's going to come to an end. There's a window of opportunity that with each passing day is closing. Is it not true that God has been so patient with us? God not been so patient with you? How many times have you heard the same message and yet within hours or days gone back to the same sins? How, how stubborn have we been over the very same issues? How many of us continue to struggle with the same sins after years and years of following Jesus? And he's so patient and so kind and so merciful, and his grace continues to be poured out in our lives. We can't abuse that. We can't take it for granted. Because with each passing day, the inevitability of judgment becomes more and more real. Matthew Henry said, when God has borne long, we may hope that he will bear with us yet a little longer. But we cannot expect that he will bear always. David Garland said, there may be a wideness to God's mercy, but there is a limit to God's patience. And if there is never any fruit, Jesus says it here through the words of the vine dresser. Cut it down. Cut it down. John the Baptist said a very similar thing in a, in a message in Luke 3 that sounds every bit like what Jesus is saying here. John said every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Let's not get to that point. Death is coming for us. We're all sinners who will face judgment. Here's the hope now. We've been, we've been waiting for this moment. Here's how we make sure that doesn't happen. This is how we reverse it. Embrace the necessity of repentance. We've uh, defined repentance previously as I agree with God 
and I've turned from my way to his way. I agree with God and I've turned to follow him. Twice Jesus says it in the first part of the passage. He says in verse three, he says it again in verse five, exact same words. No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The only way to avoid dying twice is to repent. It's to agree with God and to turn. But the glimmer of hope is that with tending, with cultivation, with repentance, it will produce what John the Baptist, again back to Luke 3 and that message, what John the Baptist called bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. What does that look like? Because Jesus says it in verse 9, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, that's perfect. That's what we're looking for. That's the only way the tree is going to be saved through these producing this fruit of repentance. And the essence of general, genuine repentance is this, that we would ask a question. Every time we come to the word of God, we would ask this question. And again, we see it in Luke 2, where John preaches, John the Baptist preaches this message. And after the people hear the word of God, this is what they say in Luke 3.10. What then shall we do? The essence of the fruit of repentance is asking the question every time we have the book in our hands, every time it's open, every time we read it, every time we hear it, it's asking the question, all right, Lord, what do I need to do to change? What are you telling me today in this passage? What needs to go? What needs to start? How can I better reflect the image of Jesus Christ? Every time, what must I do? You hear the word of God and you want to change. That's the fruit of repentance. And in light of Jesus' imminent return, it's what we must embrace. Now each of you has before you right now what the prophet Jeremiah called the way of life and the way of death. It is the way of life, fruitfulness, or the way of death, unfruitfulness. It's the way of life, repentance, or the way of death, unrepentance. Every one of you has that in front of you right now. And I would hope that you would take it seriously, but some of you have been too casual about all of this. Some of you have put off making a decision for Christ some of you have been coming for weeks, for months. Some here, maybe you've been coming for years and you've not made this decision. And I'm telling you, I'm earnestly pleading with you to say the window of opportunity is closing. And I would say respectfully, if you've been coming here for some time and hearing this message, or if you're even hearing it for the first time, because in my mind it's fairly clear. Respectfully, what more would you need me to say? What, what more could I say to persuade you to agree with God and turn to him 
to do it now before the tower falls on you. In a few moments, we're going to witness um, several young people getting baptized. And it's a sobering moment. It's always celebration. Families are here, ready to witness and celebrate with their loved ones. As a church, we're going to celebrate their witness and their testimony. There's a proper reverencing of the implications of all of this because in baptism, I am identifying with the death and burial of Jesus Christ as well as his, as his resurrection. Some preachers will say when baptism is happening uh, that the candidate is uh, buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. And uh, some of you have been far too casual about this decision. This prescription of scripture to identify with Christ in this way. You have delayed and delayed and put it off and made excuses for why you cannot do it right now. And in your mind, do you really believe there's any good reason why you would not? That there are no good reasons for delaying obedience to God and his word. And I think about Philip and, and the Ethiopian who are on the road and discussing the scriptures and the Ethiopian hears and he understands and he comes to faith and he says to Philip, look, there's water right here. What prevents me from being baptized? And they stopped the chariot and he and Philip went down into the water and he baptized him right there. So we have, I think, a half a dozen young people who are ready to be baptized right now, but there are some here who need to be baptized, and you didn't come prepared for this, but we're prepared for you. We have shorts, we have t-shirts, we have towels, we have leaders who are gonna be standing at the back and they're ready to talk to you. And I would just say to you, here is water. Before the Lord, what would prevent you from being baptized right now? Don't be casual about this. Take it seriously. Judgment is imminent. Jesus is coming back. You want to be ready for that. Let's pray. Father, um, your word has again, I believe, spoken to us with a clarity that is piercing. Let no one in this room be unmoved by what you've said to us. God bless these young people who are going to be baptized right now. Fill them with your Holy Spirit in this moment. Firm their resolve to live each day for you despite the temptations of this world. And use their testimonies, the testimony of the young to convince and convict the older. Father, save those in this room who are still in their sin and who are stubbornly refusing to repent. Father, save them so that they are no longer under the condemnation of death and judgment. May they in this very moment be agreeing with you and turning their life around to serve 
and to follow Jesus Christ. And this I pray in his strong and amazing name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.